You're tuned in to Positively Terrible. I'm producer Dan, and each week my buddy Scott and I discuss surviving and thriving after trauma. It's a journey that started when Scott, his wife's fiancé, and her boyfriend all walked into a bar. This week's decent human being is Sean. He's got a fucked up story about trauma, addiction, and recovery. Settle in, my terrible listeners. Today's episode is going to be Positively Terrible. Hey, Scott. Hey, producer Dan. How's it going today? Man, it's going pretty good. How are you? Oh, I'm tired, but feeling pretty good. But I can't stay tired when you read the intro. It makes me feel so good. I feel like I have to rip off my uh, my warm-up pants right now, maybe stretch That's out a really little bit. That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. Or you should get one of those tearaway shirts like uh, Hulk yeah. Hogan has. Oh, for sure, for sure. And, and that is a great segue, because we've got a guest today who loves the wrestling. Uh, that's not what he's here to talk about today, but Sean, how you doing this morning? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you know, my whole military career was kind of a shit show uh, filled with addiction, trauma, and, and all kinds of stuff. So I'm glad to be here and talk about my fucked up situation. Yeah. And we well, appreciate you sharing it with us, man. We, we definitely do. And Sean, you are a host of a couple of podcasts. We'll give you a minute at the end to plug it, but what are the names right now of your podcast? So uh, my first one, my baby is called Recover Out Loud, where we talk okay. about addiction and recovery. And uh, my second one uh, that is going to be debuting soon is called Beyond the Veil. All right. Awesome. I'm, what, I'm excited. What's the teaser on Beyond the Veil? Oh, man. It's a good name. Paranormal and supernatural. Ooh. (laughs) That's that's the money-making podcast. It's really nice to talk about addiction and recovery and all that, but you want to make some money, man. Let's talk paranormal. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, All right. So today you're gonna talk a little bit about your trauma, your your addiction recovery. Um, and we talked a little bit about your military service and just kind of want to uh, get some background here. What, what, what branch of the military did you serve in? I was in the army for okay. 12 and a half years. Okay. Is that something that you kind of knew you were going to do growing up? Mm. 9-11 was kind of like the deciding factor. And I know that's like really cheesy. If you talk to a lot of veterans, that might be their answer. But 9-11 was the day that I was like, I got to do something. Unfortunately, I was in seventh grade at the time, so I okay. really couldn't make any any moves. Um, through life and through through childhood, my my focus kind of shifted, and my dad and I had a falling out when I was uh, seventeen years old. And mm. I told him I didn't want to join the army or the military in general, and I wanted to become a pastor. I was I was a good church boy, mm. and he said, "No, you're going to join the military." because you need structure in, in your life. We, we fell out. I ended up walking into a recruiting station and signing a contract that day. Wow. Did, was your dad or did you have a military family? Had others served before? My great grandfather was a calf scout um, in World War II. And so he, his, one of his jobs was to shut down the Nazi concentration camps. And uh, my grandfather was a Marine in Vietnam. So, 
uh, my dad never served. Nobody else in my family served. And I just felt this like calling that was greater than myself. Okay. And what was going on in your life that your dad thought that you needed structure? Oh my goodness. Uh, I was a kid and I was a product of my father. <laughs> okay. That, that, that leads, that leads to a lot of questions. And, yeah. and of course, anything that you are not comfortable with, you don't have to talk about, but what, what do you mean by that? You, what, what, what was his deal? Uh, okay. So my father was, uh, an addict alcoholic. Got it. And he was very, very, uh, abusive. Okay. And so my, my whole childhood was pretty fucking traumatic to me. Um, and, and that was one of the things I had to work on later on in life, but, uh, it, it was very traumatic. I got kicked out of my dad's house at the age of 16, ended up sent to my grandparents' house in Maryland, back where I grew up at. And when I got there, I, I started falling into faith and, and into a religion. And dad was like, I don't like that. Right. Like, huh. and he, he was trying to control my life from a distance and he, he made it really hard for me when I was a child. And unfortunately I kind of bowed to his will. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. What, yeah. what is the fortunate part? I got to go see the world. Okay. I got to Just go do things. I got to go do things and see things that you only read in books and see on TV. And, and it was, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it sounds, I mean, that is one of the opportunities that I look at when I see people in the military that's like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, you know, and especially, well, let me ask you, I was, was going to talk about me, but nobody wants to hear that shit. Uh, <laughs> um, where were you from? Like, what type of area? Was it city, rural? I mean, could you mm. tell us that? I moved around a little bit. So I was born and mostly raised in Sharpsburg, Maryland. And if you're a big history buff, and if you know anything about the American Civil War, I grew up right next to the Antietam battlefield. Okay. And so um, I grew up there and essentially it was like just backwoods. I, I lived backwoods and uh, grew up around in a community of about 100 people. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a small community. And then when I moved with my father, I went from small backwoods, Maryland to the city, city life where the houses were literally pretty much right on each other, small backyard. And it was a huge culture shock at the age of like um, 10 or 11. Okay. And, and so like adjusting, adjustment has always been my problem. And it started there. Yeah. Okay. So what would you think was the biggest adjustment of making that move? The biggest adjustment, and this, this is going to sound really bad, but the biggest adjustment was going from a predominantly actually all white community to now I'm intermingled with um, people from all cultures, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people from the black community, people from the Hispanic community, uh, communities from Africa, Europe, Eastern Europe, everywhere. And so like having like inserting myself into that and like interacting with, with kids that <sighs> I grew up in, in, in a Christian household and I grew mm -hmm. up, I went to a Christian school 
up into the age of 10 or 11. So growing up with kids that didn't have that background was hard for me because I didn't understand like why they didn't believe these things or why their families didn't go to church on Sunday or, you know, where the actual religious structure was for them. And that's just not the case anymore. But that was one of the hardest adjustments. Yeah. And I can imagine that. And I am from a rural community and everyone assumes that your opinions are the same, that you're going to the same church that, I mean, there's, there is just a set of expectations when you grew up in rural white America. So I know, and you said this is going to sound bad, but I understand it. You're, you're going from one homogenous culture, basically culture. I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah, it's the right word. (laughs) (laughs) But then you're going to one where you're exposed to a lot more. And it's it's different. And then I'd imagine that when you join the military that you've got quite an expansive um you got a lot of different cultures there too. Is, is that a oh, yeah. good assumption to make? I I was never oh, in the military. Absolutely. Yeah. You get you get people from all over the place, like all over the country and the world. There's people who are not national citizens that come in to the military because they mm-hmm. want a different way of life. They want to provide better for their family and all the love and support to them. You know, I've met people who gain their citizenship through the military, through service. Mm-hmm. And, and and I I have nothing but the the utmost respect for those human beings because they're they're some of the most amazing human beings I've ever met in my life. Okay. So, well, I'm sorry, Dan, it looked like you're going to ask a question. No, no, I'm with you. I, I, I keep the conversation going. Don't let me screw it up. Okay. I, I won't even look at you again. So I, <laughs> I, I don't get confused. You, you, maybe you're just thinking about eating something. Your mouth was hanging up a little bit open. So, <laughs> um, but no, Sean, hey, I woke up with drool this morning. So it's all good. <laughs> it's tough, man. When it gets deep in that beard. Oh, oh yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We haven't told the listeners yet that today I've got the second best beard in this. <laughs> Sean's got an impressive one that goes down at least to chest level. I I can't see any any further down than that. Um, it was belly button and it started dying off, and I had to I had to trim it down. So oh no, wait, that's a different. That's a. I was gonna say that's a trauma in itself. Dying off. What do you mean by that? <laughs> So once your hair reaches a certain length, you you have, you know, the maintenance is no longer uh, an issue for you, but the the roots tend to start dying off, right? So if you don't yeah. trim it off, the hair naturally like a plant will start, you know, dying off. So yeah. you got to trim it down to keep it to keep it formed, keep it alive and stuff like that. All right. Okay. And I'm sorry. I may not have the second best beard here. Dan's is pretty nice. I just like to take a shot every now and then. I just got to keep it so short now that it's so gray, man. It used to be a lot mightier, but. Uh, I don't think you need to. Dan's like the Richard Greer of beards. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, you've got to get that about every day, right, Dan? I I, I should. I should get that every day. (laughs) But, all right. So, Sean, you joined the military and. What is the experience like when you start there? I mean, like, can you can you just kind of describe what happens when you join the military? Yeah. So you, you there's a process prior to joining the military. People think that you just sign a contract and then you go right. Like mm-hmm. and you're off and you're off to the races and you're shooting bad guys. And that's just not the case. Um, so I signed, a mili- the, I signed my contract in um, Baltimore, Maryland, and mm-hmm. then I moved up with my dad. I ended up getting 
sent to Buffalo to, to get sent out, but I had to take a placement test, right? Every branch of the service, whether it's Marines, Navy, Air Force, Army, and now I guess we got Space Force and Coast Guard, <laughs> okay. you have to take a placement test, right? To see what job you would fit into. Mm-hmm. And and so when when I did it, I got I went in there and I got a pretty decent score and I, I chose to be a forward observer. And I had no clue what that would be, right? Yeah. And and the <laughs> The recruiter was like, yeah, dude, you're going to sit in New York and watch bombs drop on a TV. I'm like, dude, fuck yeah. I'm for it. <laughs> okay. Let's do it. Right? It's Call okay. of Duty. Well, Call of Duty was not at that time. but okay, right. So I, I went to basic training at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And right off the bat, Oklahoma sucks. If you guys are from Oklahoma, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least at least Fort Sill did it. It was right outside of uh, of Lawton. And it's just terrible. Okay. Um, Big apologies I, to both of our Oklahoma listeners. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to you, to you two guys uh, or gals. Uh, I, I appreciate your service in Oklahoma. Um, but it, it basic basic training was, in my opinion, really easy because I lived in chaos as a child. I was used to the screaming, the yelling moving fast, doing all these, all the dumb shit you have to do. So it really wasn't that hard for me. The physical aspect was easy. I was in great shape going into basic training. I was 18 years old. Um, so it was really easy for me. Um, the hardest thing for me in basic training was shooting because I never like touched a gun. And, and I didn't, un- I understood the concept of here's your safety. Here's the trigger. I didn't understand the concept of zeroing weapons in or any of that stuff, which was really hard for me. Like I said, I was never raised around guns. My grand, my grandfather was was in Vietnam, so he was naturally shell shocked from everything that happened in Vietnam. And I'd only shot in a gun probably once in my life prior to basic training, and so that was the hardest. And I graduated basic, and I went into what's called advanced individual training, where it's your job training. You learn how to the basics, just like going to any trade school, you learn the basics of your job. Okay. And so learn the basics of my job, which was talking to artillery and mortars. Uh, eventually it would move into, into helicopters and jets to drop bombs on targets of opportunity or, or targets of interest. So if I understand correct, mm-hmm. your job was to sit in an office or like an operations type center. You're going to, take satellite information you're going to make sure that the people that are shooting at the right places have the right information is that yes yes and no okay okay that's a, that's at a much higher echelon okay um, well my job was to be was to be on the ground be the eyes for for the maneuver unit right so for infantry cavalry uh and any unit that would be maneuvering um i worked hand in hand with with the patrol leader so a lieutenant or or a a senior non-commissioned officer and i would watch out and if they said hey that needs to go then i would pull up the the grid for it allocate the assets for it and then call it in got it so you are uh helping target those items from the field yep, yep. got it thank you yep yep and so uh, I did that, and, and AIT was a little bit more difficult for me because I'm not like a book study kind of person. I'm practical application. You, 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 you throw a book at me, like you take one of the books I have on my shelf back here, and you say, "Hey, read this and comprehend it." I'll be like, 
can't, right. I don't, it, it's not obtaining in here. But if you, if you put it in my hands and you say, this is how you do it. And I do it like two times, I got it down for the rest of my life. And so that's where it was like really hard for me was they were like, Hey, read, read the FM 6.30. And I'm like, <laughs> what is FM? It's field manual, but I don't understand what this shit means. Right. Um, so uh, I, I graduated AIT. I did all right there. And then I went into airborne school, which the uh, airborne, um, a lot of people, you've, you might've heard that term, but it's jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you learn how to, you first you learn how to fall and that's weird. Then you learn how mm -hmm. to land and that's a little bit more weird. And then they drop you from a 200 foot tower and then they lead you into jumping out of an actual moving aircraft. And um, I'm terrified of heights. <laughs> but the adrenaline rush was was amazing. Something I had never experienced before. The thoughts in your head going up and then getting there, and then they open up the door, and you're looking down at the ground where you're about to fucking land, and you're like, eh, I could die today. Right. <laughs> well, fuck well, it. John, can can I interrupt it for just a second? I'm mm -hmm. I'm a little confused how we go from we're gonna sit in an office in New York to jumping to to being an airborne. I, I, yeah. How did we get there? Um, well, there's a common theme amongst people that uh, join, and that is that recruiters lie. They tell you what you need, what you want to hear. Because when <laughs> okay. I initially signed my contract, I didn't want to be combat arms. Right? Uh -huh. Like, I didn't want to do that. I seen what it did to my dad, my grandfather. Didn't want to do it. Uh, I didn't want to put myself in harm's way. And then when I got to AIT, I was like, well, I'm here. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot back out of this shit. Mm -hmm. I have a contract. And so I kind of adapted to it, right? Like, and I told, I told you like adapting was kind of like my hard thing, but I started to learn to adapt to it. And so when I got to AIT, they said, who wants to go airborne? And I was like, fuck it, man, let's do it. Let's have fun. <laughs> let's, let, let's make the most of this situation. Okay. And so uh, I went to airborne school, conducted five jumps out of a moving aircraft. It was fun. The first one, uh, when I jumped out, I screamed, fuck the whole way down. Right. Like, <laughs> like bah, 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 bah. <laughs> and, and we were loading up to do the next jump uh, the, an hour later. And the, we call them jump masters. So the people that check your equipment to make sure that you are, are safe and the people that give you the commands in the aircraft, uh, <laughs> Was like now who in the fuck yelled fuck the over down? I was like that was me, and he was like don't do that shit again. So I jumped out and like I was like fuck 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 fuck, <laughs> right? And, and and that fear never went away, right? Like that fear of heights, okay. the fear of jumping never went yeah. away. Um, so I graduated airborne school, and they hand you your orders and they say, hey, this is where you're going. Now everybody's like going to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, because that's home of the 82nd Airborne. Or going up to Alaska, which is like 425 or like Fort Campbell, Fort Drum. And I'm looking and I'm like, Caserma, Ederly, where in the fuck is that? And I'm looking on this map of like locations and I can't find it. I'm like, dude, where are you guys sending me? Like, this is scary. And I found out like when I got my official orders, like those were the mock orders. When I got my official orders, it was Italy. Okay. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, this is cool. So my first duty station was Italy, and I went over there. And Where in Italy was that? Uh, it was in Vicenza, which is like half an hour from Venice. Yeah. It's, okay. it's in the northern part. Um, and, and I got there in January, and it was just beautiful. January 2007, just absolutely beautiful. Mist all over the place. 
like it hadn't it, it had just snowed and like the weather was starting to change a little bit and like it was just beautiful and that's where my addiction started <laughs> um so i get i get there and the first weekend i'm there they're like hey we follow the rules of the land you can drink i'm an 18 year old child and if you know anything about the human brain the human the male brain mm-hmm. does not stop developing till about the age of 23 okay yeah so uh I drank like I had been a professional drinker. You know, I made this promise to myself when I was a kid. I'm never going to drink, drug, or smoke. <laughs> and like, I broke two of those in the first weekend. <laughs> um, <laughs> left up my own devices. I, I broke both of them promises in, in a weekend. And uh, so, not so drugs, is, though. So is when you are in Italy, is this an American base that you're yes. stationed at? Is there an Italian base that has Americans? I mean, how does that, yes. I, I guess I don't understand how that works. Okay. So they have these big, big bases that are called casermas, which are during world war one and two, they were, they were used to house um, Italian army mm-hmm. and, and anybody that was moving through the area. And so we, the Americans during World War II, we held occupation in Italy, and mm-hmm. so just like we did in Germany and Austria and some other places, we moved out of Austria, but we stayed in Italy, um, England, Germany, and some other places. And so we had these casermas all over the place. Now in Italy, I think there's three. There's 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 where I was at. There's Pisa, and there's Naples. And Naples is for Navy, and Pisa is for like military police. Which is cool. Okay. So we we occupied this one in Vicenza, and it was right in the heart, one like kind of like the outskirts of the city. And so we stayed there. Now, when you think of a military base, you think it's like huge, which most of them are. But Vicenza was like a mile by two miles. It was very small, and so you had to you had to house quite a few people on on the base. So like everybody was cramped, everybody was crowded, and uh, it was just wild. Like everybody knew everybody. If you see this patch, this is the patch for the 173rd. If you see this patch, people are like, oh, where were you and when were you? And so, yeah, it's pretty crazy. All right. Cool. Um, that sounds like I can imagine being 18. I mean, Italy is beautiful. I've been to Italy a, a couple times. Fantastic. Um, I can imagine being 18, giving a job. I mean, a job where you make some decent money when you're 18 Mm-hmm. especially when your housing is paid for your regular food is paid for you've just got pocket money like you you haven't had before yeah. and then all right you're also allowed to drink in a spot where normally your peers wouldn't be able to drink for another three years so you might drink some beers in the woods but you're not going out to a bar and just being allowed to do anything yeah um and you've got like regular time off right you've got like yeah. some weekend time you can get out for a day or two and do whatever you want. Am I am I correct in all of these assumptions? Yeah. So when you're active military, uh, your job, they say you're a soldier 24-7, but realistically, you're working from 6.30 in the morning to about 5 p.m. at night. And that's it. The rest of the time is yours. You can go out. You can go fuck off. You can go sightsee. Uh, the weekends, unless you're doing a training rotation or you have some kind of like 24-hour duty, you're allowed to go do whatever you want. We got four-day weekends. We have... Uh, what civilians would be considered, you know, paid leave where you can just fly wherever. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you had a regular ish life, uh, and you had a social life, but it wasn't like normal. Right. So were you, 
running around with a bunch of other 18 year olds when you got there or <laughs> was it kind of just a big mix okay it oh, was oh, oh oh yeah we ran around quite a bit um <laughs> i ran around with i mean you know i got introduced to people in my unit so naturally you got people of all ages there uh, they don't like you to fraternize or fraternize in the army. So like you, it would be very rare to see a, a guy as a private partying with an officer or a okay. non-commissioned officer. But the exception to that is because my unit was so small and, and there was not very many of us, we all packed in together, right? It wouldn't, it would be very common to go to a strip club and see a commanding officer that's fucking married out with his lower enlisted. That, okay. that happens, you know, it's, it's much like, uh, band of brothers. So, okay. uh, if you, if you've seen that, but yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, we were running around, have a good time, you know, the, that's where I really learned my partying was, was there, right? Like I, we would go out seven, eight, nine o'clock at night, go eat something, go out to a bar that would lead to another bar that would lead to a club across across town that would lead to a club out of the city and then you wouldn't be coming home rolling back in until about 10 o'clock in the morning and it was just insane mm-hmm. and that was the european party style now that actually formed an addiction for me because i didn't understand the concept of moderation right like i mm-hmm. grew up watching my dad get absolutely shit-faced and i didn't I, I, I there was no healthy observation of that so i had this what's called in the recovery field the hereditary disposition where if you have a parent that is is an addict or an alcoholic you're more likely to to pick that up right mm-hmm. my mom and my dad were both addicts and alcoholics so i was at a greater risk for that and then my decision making wasn't the best either so there's that portion um in may 2007 i got deployed to afghanistan for the first deployment and I don't know if you guys like watch war documentaries or whatnot, but there was a documentary made about that deployment, my platoon, and it was called Restrepo. The second one was called Corngol. And can you fo- drop yeah. the links of those names into our chat real quick? Because I would love to put yep. some links in the show notes yep. to that. Yep. So the the hard thing uh, about finding Restrepo is it's not easy to find, and you actually have to do some digging. But. Um, you can find Corngall anywhere. So there's that. Right. So you can find that on Amazon, uh, Corngall on Amazon. That's the second one that they, that was made. But it was made by Sebastian Younger, the guy who wrote The Perfect Storm. Um, and he made some other stuff and just great human being. But on that deployment, it was a 15-month deployment. So uh, it, it was insane. The first six months of that deployment, I did absolutely nothing. Dan, like you asked earlier, I sat in the office, I watched stuff on, on radar. Um, I received reports, I collaborated reports together and sent them to higher echelons. But after that six months, I actually got put in a fight. Funny story. The guy that I was replacing ended up setting himself on fire on accident. How did he do that? We had to burn our own <laughs> shit. We had to burn our own shit. Like like feces, human feces. We had mm-hmm. to burn it and, and all that stuff. And uh, he, he took a gas can and poured it directly on the fire. The fire went up in and exploded. So wow. somebody replaced him and I had to replace that somebody. And okay. so I did. And went to the Korngal Valley in Afghanistan. And it was one of the most wild, intense times. 
I was 18 years old. I had like nobody to live for, dude. Like yeah. my dad was out of my life. My mom was out of my life. I really didn't have family. I didn't have a girlfriend, none of that. So I had this mentality of like, if I die, I die. It doesn't fucking matter. Right. Yeah. And, and Sean, you said that was wild, but I want to ask a question that would precede yeah. this. Yeah. What is it like when you're deployed? Like when they tell you you're going to go serve a tour, mm-hmm. how do you get those orders and what's going through your mind when it happens? So it's, it's not like a it's not like an individual person gets gets an order and you go and you don't know anybody you you deploy with your whole unit sure and so um, the unit packs up they train they get ready to fight they train everything they train for the environment but you can't really like train for the mountains right because mm-hmm. uh, that's where we were we were in the mountains so um, you couldn't really train for that the best you could do was like walk with a bunch of heavy weight mm-hmm. and. So you, you do training rotations and eventually you get your orders, you pack up, you fly out to, um, we, we flew to Turkmenistan cause there's a base in Turkmenistan and then we would fly into Bagram, which if you followed the news for the past two years, we pulled out of, out of Afghanistan, pulled out of Bagram. That's mm-hmm. where we flew to. That was okay. the hub for us to disperse out through the rest of the country. And so, uh, we got to Bagram and they gave us like a situation update of like the area that we were going to. Uh, it was a huge Air Force base, so, like, there's all the amenities. Like, you had Burger King, you had fucking Subway, <laughs> TGI Friday. There was a TGI Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> all places, Afghanistan, TGI I, Fridays. I, I, I think it's gone downhill a little bit. I used to like TGI Fridays. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I can't eat TGI Fridays anymore. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, you fly there and then, and then you go to a smaller hub and then that smaller hub leads you to where you're going to go. It's mm-hmm. much like flying like a regular airplane. Okay. And so we get, uh, you know, I, I went to a bigger base right off the bat. So it was kind of like we had amenities, we had gyms, we had, uh, big stores, like not big stores, but we had like American tobacco, we had American products, but then you go to like the smaller base, like ours was super small really really small to the point where like you could see the mountains across the way and then you could see down the valley all the way to the end of it it was okay and like if you've never seen afghanistan like pictures or videos it is fucking gorgeous absolutely gorgeous and it is some of the most breathtaking mountain scenery i've ever seen in my life but it sucks right (laughs) like the taliban sucks uh i but I will say, in saying that, like a lot of people don't respect your enemy, and, and so um, I learned a great respect for the Taliban because um, we think that they're dumb because they live in the Middle Ages. But realistically, they're some of the smartest human beings you'd ever meet in your life. You, I don't know a human being that can devise a bomb out of nothing, and they did, and it was wild. You know, they could, they could move faster than we could. They could shoot better than we could. It it was crazy, right? The complex attacks and they've been doing this for since the existence of Afghanistan, right? With, with Alexander the great Genghis Khan, the Russians, anybody else's, there's never been a war that has been gone into Afghanistan and has been won by the, by the people going in. That's a fact. Yeah. And it's because people didn't understand the concept of like how to fight in each terrain. Because you got every terrain in Afghanistan. Yeah. You got mountains, desert. You've got uh, <laughs> desolate desert where it's just like you got moon, you know, uh, moon sand, 
and or, or red sand and you got city you've got forest like you've got every environment that you can think of and a lot it's just a lot and yeah. you can't tell you can't kill terrorism right yeah well you said the first six months were i, I don't know if you said boring but it sounded a little boring um, yeah it was although in war i'd imagine boring can be good um yeah. And then the next six months, uh, or however long that was. So it starts to change. You get an assignment. What happens? Yep, yep. So I, I get assigned to Battle Company 2nd Battalion, 503rd. And um, I get sent to the Cornwall Valley, and it was insane. A lot of people can't fathom getting shot at. Uh, and, and when we mean shot at, like direct fire, about seven, eight times a day. And that was happening every day. And, and it was it was wild, you know. Direct fire being small arms fire, uh, AK forty seven, Dishkas, Dragonoffs, stuff like that. But then you get indirect fire with the mortars, rockets, all that stuff was happening all the time. RPGs, and then um, there's guys in, in other platoons that would need time off, uh, so I'd go and fill in for them. They would cut, they would come take my position for a little bit. I'd go down there. And um, like I said, I was 18 years old. I had zero, like, nobody lived for, no self-confidence, no understanding of life, no gratitude of life. So, like, I was out there doing things I normally wouldn't do. I'd stand up in a firefight, bah, 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 you know, get behind cover, stand up, leave myself a little bit more exposed. But my job, I had to observe the rounds coming down. And so, uh, around, you know, um, mortars were dropping, artillery was dropping, I was controlling aircraft all at one time. And it was just, it was madness. And... But I enjoyed it and I thrived in the chaos because when I was a kid, chaos was what I knew. So everything that was chaotic was was fucking easy for me. And so that that went on for like nine months. And the thing that a lot of people don't understand is when you're in that mindset for an extended period of time, that fight or flight for an extended period of time, um, you don't know how to shut it off. So that's that's what a lot of veterans have a problem with, uh, amongst other things, is like shutting that off, right? When you're when you join the military, they tell you get angry. Everything that you do, you're gonna get angry, and um, you don't know how to shut that anger off. You don't know how to shut that that fight or flight off. It's really hard, and and um, so that was one of the things later on in life that I had to learn about. And so in that six months, man, like, sh or sorry, that nine months, like things were crazy, right? You know, it, it's not like Band of Brothers or any like war documentary that you would see where you're just walking and you go to one place, you walk, you go to another. Like you have a base that you go to and you operate out of and then you'll go on a patrol, come back, go on a patrol. I've had close calls during that deployment, um, but nothing that I would say was like life altering to me. Mm -hmm. And um, and in August 2008, we redeployed back to back to Italy. And that transition was hard. And it was hard because like 30 minutes after I got off the plane, I, I was back in my room drinking like I had been before. So I was sober for 15 months, but not willingly sober, right? Like I, okay. and, and so um, I, I was drinking for <clears throat> about a year straight, just like getting fucked up all the time. And, and like I was drinking to escape the things that had happened. I was drinking to try and fit in i was drinking all these other reasons except for like to just to relax like a normal human being yeah and i met a woman and she was 27 i was 20 <laughs> <laughs> looking back now that was a big age difference and um so i didn't understand the concept of relationships all this other stuff 
And um, I was just a child, man. I was a child. And uh, November 2009, we got orders to go back to Afghanistan in December to the same province, different location. And so we're right back on that, on right back in that cycle of, of getting everything packed up, getting to go. We left and we were gone for 12 months. And that deployment changed a little bit for me, uh, primarily because we weren't out like actively seeking out the enemy. Cause that was when the surge was kind of dying down and we weren't like out there trying to, to fuck people up. We were out there defending ourselves and defending other people. And so like, my my unit we we did what's called QRF or my platoon we did quick reaction force so somebody in our area of operation got into a firefight that was bad enough that they needed backup we were we were up out of our beds in a truck rolling out the gate in 15 minutes which is like super hard because you got to get equipment ready radios all that stuff and so we're up out of our bed moving it in 15 minutes and route to wherever we had to go and that was like the common theme around the area and on top of that we were running um um, rock clearance patrols where we would go and drive down, down a certain stretch of road for an extended period of time, turn around, come back, or we would provide overwatch for other, uh, units that were driving through our area that had a lot more vehicles, but a lot less weapons. And so we got into a lot of firefights that, that, that deployment. And, um, I hit my first IED in that deployment. And if you guys don't know what IED is, it's an improvised explosive device. Right. It's either on the side of the road or in the road. And, um, <laughs> a week before my birthday, my, uh, my 22nd birthday, we hit an IED and, um, I was in a truck. We were rolling. Um, I guess we hit a pressure plate, which, uh, a pressure plate. A lot of people think it's just, you know, is the bomb, right? And it's mm-hmm. not, it's, it's, it's a release pressure plate. So you step on it and then you release the weight and it boom goes, it blows up. And typically there, there's a bomb somewhere within the radius. Okay. And so our truck rolled over it. And w- when we rolled over it, it blew up right underneath me. Um, and so we went, we went ass up, nose down, uh, face down, ass up. That's the way we like to fuck. And, um, (laughs) and, you know, we hit and we go nose down and we're like teetering for a second. Everybody. And I I mean, everybody with the exception of me is knocked the fuck out from the concussion. And I grabbed my gunner because my gun, like I I rode in the backseat and my, the gunner was right next to me and I grabbed his thing and pulled him down. And when we landed, like blacked out for a second, came to and driver and my Lieutenant were knocked out. And my gunner was on the stand and I see no blood coming out of his nose. And I was like, like instant thought was like, he's fucking dead. Right. Like he's dead. And like, I started freaking out a little bit. I'd never been put in a life death situation like that before. And so I was like freaking out, like shaking him, smacking him in the face, you know, releasing him from his harness. And he came to, and the only thing that happened was when we hit, um, his weapon came up and he was going down and smacked him right in the face knocked him out clean. Wow. So we got out of the vehicle and, and we got evaluated for traumatic brain injury and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, took some, took a few days off and then resumed. Um, but yeah, we got back from that deployment a year later, the woman that I, that I fell in love with, she would become my fiance prior to that deployment was cheating on me. So mm-hmm. that relationship was over. I got the dear John pictures. It was great. Um, <laughs> 
And was she was she American at the base no, or was she, she was, Italian? She was, Ita- she was Italian. And um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, my life kind of changed halfway through that deployment. When I found out like she was cheating on me, my mentality went from like, I'm I need to be a little bit more protective of myself to fuck it. I don't care if I die. And th- and that's the the drastic like life measures that I, I would live in was just that mentality of like, if I die, I die. And so we get back and once again, like I'm getting off the aircraft half an hour later, I'm getting fucked up. And, um, it it was crazy. So for the next like six months, I was drinking a lot, eh, a little bit less than that. And then I met a a woman at a bar and like her and I had been friends on Facebook and we talked a little bit, but we went out and partied one night and like, we got really close really quick. And, um, we ended up wanting to get married. And, um, I got orders to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And so I had to transition from Italy to North Carolina. And when, uh, I was, you, you get leave to go home and visit your family and make your way to your next duty station in between there. So I had like 30 days to fuck off. And she met me in Pennsylvania where my dad lived and we had the bright idea of going to get fucking married. <laughs> yeah. So we got married in a courthouse. I, I can hear by the tone that it worked out happily ever after. <laughs> I will say in this venture of my life, um, I'm glad that she's still part of my life. Oh, uh, okay. And you're going to find out why. So All right. on the way to Fort Bragg from Pennsylvania, um, well, actually, at, when we got to Fort Bragg, like a month after we got there, we found out she was pregnant. And we, we wanted to keep the baby. Um how old I were you at this point? Oh, fuck. I was like 23, 24. Okay. I was still a child. And, but I wasn't ready to like be a dad. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I know that's really shitty to sound, you know, and, and to say, and I've, I felt bad for even saying it the first few times, but I wasn't ready to be a dad. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I still didn't have a grasp on my life. I didn't know who I was. None of that. And uh, so we had this baby, uh, but she was pregnant <laughs> and I got to Fort Bragg and they were like, Hey dude, by the way, like, we're leaving in a few months to go to Afghanistan. Shoot me now, motherfucker. <laughs> so, um, so you got a new wife, you got a baby yeah. on the way. Yeah. Your new wife from Italy is now living in North Carolina with you. Well, so, so she was American. Oh, was she? Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. She was American. She was a dependent. Uh, her and I were the same age, but she was going to school, uh, with her family, uh, over in Italy. Um, her dad was was in the army. Her step or her mom was was not, and so like they had the family dynamic going there. They uh, they ended up getting stationed in Alaska, and so I ended up moving down to Fort Bragg, and she met me there. Anyways, um, yeah, I, we're you know we're doing the family thing, and I'm 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 relapsing back and forth on alcohol, right? Like back and forth. She'll be like, did I don't she recognize you. that as an issue at the time? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. oh, 100%. 100%. Did She's you like, consider it an issue? Fuck no. Here. <laughs> I'll tell you my mentality. I was like everybody else has the problem. Everybody's got a problem with my drinking. I don't have a problem with drinking. <laughs> and and that was the mentality that I held for a very long time. And so um I was relapsing back and forth, back and forth, and she kept giving me the ultimatum if you don't quit drinking, I'm going to leave. And I'm like, "All right, cool." And then something would happen, and I would be like, well, I'm just going to have one. And then one led to, like, I was going back to the way I was. Sure. I mean, that's how it is. 
And so, um, you know, I we end up deploying to Afghanistan, and um, we spent seven months in Afghanistan. And so, some of the fucking wildest, wildest situations I've ever been in in my life. Our unit was meant to go and patrol the roads and like pick out bombs so like other people could come through and be safe. God damn it! I'm telling you that is if if you have never been in a situation where like you are tense all the time for no fucking reason or for a good reason. <laughs> I was gonna say I th- I think I know the reason. Yeah, if you're, yeah, yeah. So like we're walking, dude, and like most units will 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 find like one or two IEDs on the road. We were finding them like every hundred meters, wow. and just fucking walking. And boom, we get a hit. Boom. Um, but there was this big mission in May, uh, at the end of May, 2012. And it was going to week, be a week long mission where like, if you watched war movies or war shows, we're walking and we're just, we're establishing a location and then we're going to keep continuing. And we had phase lines we had to hit and all this other stuff. And so, um, right before then, you know, I had a best friend. His name was Nick Levison. Um, him and I used to go to the gym all the time, right? Like, and I ran into him at Fort Bragg prior to deployment and we became really good friends and we became better friends on deployment. Like the one thing that people don't understand is like the bond that you create with people while in those situations is one that you will never uh, be able to replicate, right? Like yeah, I, I can't totally even imagine. I can, I can, I can call somebody from my first deployment and be like, Hey man, like I'm, I'm, I'm fucked up up here. They'd be like, Hey man, what's up? Let's talk. Right. Somebody that I haven't spoken to in 10, 15 years. And, and it's just like, like nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And so like him and I created this like really strong bond to the point where like when we were doing guard duties together, like we were asking to be switched. So we would be in the same location so that we could fucking just hang out and talk and bullshit. Mm-hmm. And so him and I had gotten into this argument a week prior to, to that, that mission. And, um, we both exchanged the fuck yous like piece of shit. Like, don't talk to us. <laughs> and, uh, so prior to like every patrol, I'd go and I'd tap everybody on the head and say, I love you. And like that mission, I did that and I got to him and he was our lead guy. He was our mind sweeper. He was the guy that detected the IEDs or the signatures. I went up to him and I, I couldn't do it. I could, dude, my pride got in the way. And I was like, I, I just couldn't do it. And I turned back around and I sat down. We go on that patrol and like we're an hour and a half into the mission and he hits an IED. Like steps on an IED. And he's not dead right away. But like that instant like fuck moment was there. Right? Because these, these are stories that you hear in books or see in mm-hmm. movies. Like yeah. an instant regret. And so, like, I remember everything about that situation. I remember the taste, the smell of the air. I remember uh, the fucking scenery. Like, most people, when they experience traumatic injury or traumatic situations, they don't remember certain parts of it. And there's us, some of us, that remember everything about it. And I remember everything about it. Like, it's ingrained in my head. And so I remember, like, walking up on him and seeing his legs gone. And it looked like somebody had taken, like, a fork and shredded it. And his one of his arms was gone. The only reason that his other arm wasn't gone is because the minesweeper was there. And um, he was just laying there, pale. And, like, his, you know, when he actually got out of shock, we had all the medics up there. There was, like, four of them working on him. 
And he looked at one of the female medics and was like, you have the most beautiful eyes I've ever seen. And that was like tear jerking moment. And um, then, you know, they were going to put tourniquets on him and they had to reach into his pants because his legs were gone from above the knees. Right. Okay. And so they're going to put tourniquets on him. <laughs> and so they had to undo his pants. And one of the, you know, he looked at one of the female nurses and he was like, I just got a question. And she's like, what? And he's like, is my dick okay? <laughs> and like, like, that's the thing. Like a lot of. I was going to say, is this a sincere question from someone yes. in shock? Or, okay, I, I wasn't he sure if was, it was that or if he was still like trying to make a joke or something. He was dead. He's like, is my dick okay? And she's like, yeah, it's fine. And he's like, all right, cool. Good. And like, so they worked <laughs> on him. They tried to stabilize him in everything that, you know, every way that they could. Uh, we got him on a plane. But prior to like, prior to all that, like, after that happened, I was looking around and seeing like we didn't have any rear security. And now, like in an element like that, you got to have rear security. Make sure nobody's sneaking up on you. So, like, I walked out of the compound that we were in because it was small, like four walled compound with an entrance and an exit. And he he got hit on the opposite exit or on the exit. And so, like, I turned the corner and I seen like this fucking guy. And I swear, to God, like. I seen this guy in all white and he was walking. He had these prayer beads and like the, the devil and the angel. That was the moment. One of the defining moments in my life where like angel and devil were talking and the, the devil was like, fuck him, take him out. And the angel was like, you don't know. You don't know if this dude like had any part of this. And I was like, well, nobody else. Is, like the devil was like, nobody else is here. Right. Like nobody can see this. If he fucking. He, he had to have done it. And like the angel was like, don't do it, dude. And like, I had my, I had my sights right on his forehead. My weapon was zeroed in, man. Like I put my selector switch on semi. I was like, and then he looked at me. And when he looked at me dead in the face, right. And, and I seen the fear in his eyes. I just, I couldn't fucking do it. Right. And like my humanity kicked in. I lowered my weapon and, and told him to go. And like, I'm really happy that I didn't pull the trigger because that would be something like I had to live with for the rest of my life. And I probably would have gone to jail for that because that would have been a war crime. And so, you know, we get him on, on a Black Hawk, which is a medevac aircraft, and he dies on the way. And that was something I had to live with for the, you know, for my whole life. Like, my pride got in the way and I couldn't say, I love you. Yeah, that's an. In incredibly hard way to learn a lesson oh yeah yeah so i get back from that deployment but i'm like not the same i'm not the same person that left fort bragg and my at the time wife could see it mm -hmm. and uh, i had pictures of everybody i had ever we had i had ever lost that i knew and on the wall and i was like that's gonna help me process through this but it really made me numb to everything well sean and did you change did you change during, for after each deployment or do you think you more or less stayed the same until this one? I think I, I changed a little bit after every deployment, mm -hmm. but that, that one in 2012 really changed me. Like I was angry all the time. I hated people. I hated myself more. Um, I questioned everything about myself. I questioned like literally everything. My decision-making process was out of the window. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Sean, I've, I've let this go a little bit longer than we have been lately um, because I'm absolutely, uh, I mean, your storytelling is 
it's hard to hear in a, in a good way. (laughs) I mean, in a good, I I can't even imagine. And and thank you for, for sharing a lot of this. And Dan, I, I'm saying this on purpose too, to know how much time you have. I got all Um, the time in the world for this, man. This, This is fantastic. And also, you know, it's, it's not about me, but uh, I, I lost a, a cousin in Iraq um, to an IED in here. And I don't, I don't know if you could see the tears behind my glasses, but uh, uh, yeah, it's your story's hitting home a little bit. And then I appreciate you telling me. Sorry for your loss. Um, yeah, man. Thank you. And thank, thank you for going through all the shit that you've gone through, man. Um, but yeah, let's keep, let's keep this going. And if you've got time, let's, you know, let's, let's wrap it up with the next 20 to 30 minutes. Is that all right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, yeah, uh, I get back from that deployment completely changed. And um, I, I'm relapsing back and forth again because I really just I don't have any concept of like what is going on in life and, and like how to manage these these symptoms. And I go on one more deployment in 2014 and. This one was not like the other ones, right? Like we weren't running combat missions. We weren't out there trying to pursue bad guys. We were guarding Department of State and a fucking hotel in Afghanistan. And it was chill. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do with myself, man. Like we had <laughs> catered meals. We had like three catered meals every day. We had internet in, in the hotels. We had three gyms in the hotel. Um. And I was working night times watching chat on on a on on a system, and I was just like, "This is boring." But like, what happens, at least with me, is like idle hands do the devil's work. So I had all this time to think, and I was like, "Well, do I really love my wife? Like, I love my kid. Do I love my wife? Right? And, and, am I in love with her?" And so, like, I came up with this idea, like, and this thought that, like. I love her because she's my daughter's mom, but I'm not in love with her. And I told her that, and and like, <laughs> God damn it. Everybody in my life turned away from me. You're abandoning your child. And I was like, no, I'm not. I, I want to be an active part of my child's life, but I don't want my child to be raised in a household where the parents hate each other. Because right. I was raised in like that. Right. I became public enemy number one. Um. So we go and and we do the separation, the hardest thing that I had to face in that time was driving my daughter and her mother down to Georgia to be with her mother. And um, as I'm walking out the door, uh, my daughter's standing at the door with her little, with her little Snuggie. And she's like, dad, don't go. She's two or three years old at the time. Ripped me to shreds. Cause like I said, that's my dad. Right. Wow. And I'm perpetuating yeah. this fucking cycle. And, uh, so yeah, I, I eight hour drive back to Fort Bragg, cried the whole time, and it was just a really hard transition. And then after that, I met a woman. <laughs> See this? This is a another cycle. I met another woman, and everybody seen the red flags. I didn't see them. I got divorced, and less than twenty four hours later, I was remarried. <laughs> like we'll 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 just cut we'll cut the shit here, and I'll say twelve hours. I was married, remarried. <laughs> No fucking time. No time whatsoever. And uh, that was a shitty relationship. Absolutely terrible. Um, can, I got can ordered. I ask... yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to no, say, I, again, I, I, I never served, but 
it seems to me like a lot of people who do serve get married young. Um, is that part of the service? Is this part of knowing that your job could get you killed? I, I mean, what is it? I, I, I just, it seems like a disproportionate number of, of service people get married young and I, well, it just might be, I might be off base here. Well, there's a statistic that like 80% of service members uh, have childhood trauma. Okay. And so that's why we, we thrive in, in, in the chaos is because like, we're good at chaos. Like <laughs> chaos is our business, right? So like we kind of perpetuate that chaos and it sucks, you know, and I'll be the first to admit it. Like I, I'm not, a, I, I wasn't a great human being at that, in that portion of my life. Um, I made some really shitty decisions and I did some really shitty things and I hurt a lot of people that didn't serve it. Um, and I don't know why we get young, married at a young age. I think it's because we have this skewed vision of what love really is, mm. or we have this like skewed vision of what a healthy relationship looks like because it wasn't modeled for us when we were kids. And yeah, so it, we we get married at a young age, and it's a running joke. Like we uh, don't divorce, you know, don't marry a stripper, but that happens. <laughs> you know, you're doing. She's doing it for the for the housing allowance. That really happens. Um, but yeah, I got, you know, I got remarried and then um, I reenlisted because I was like, I love the army. <laughs> and then I hated it afterwards. But um, I got stationed in Alaska, right? Like moved, mm -hmm. drove all the way from North Carolina to Alaska, 11 day trip. It was wild. I had a great time. Um, got up there and... Um, out, we were slated to go on another deployment and I was like, yeah, let's do it. And they do this like pre-deployment memory test or like functionality test of your brain. And I failed it on all levels, short-term, long-term memory, reaction time, and um, something else that shows my brain. Anyways, uh, <laughs> they're like, Hey, look, dude, you got TBI. And I was like, what the fuck is TBI? And they're like traumatic brain injury. It made a lot of sense, but I was in real big denial. And I was like, I don't have fucking TBI. What mm -hmm. You have TBI, right? <laughs> it's not me. It's you. Yeah. I'm not crying. You're crying. Um, <laughs> so when they started running down the list of symptoms, I was like, yeah, I have that. I have all those. Mm -hmm. And so they put me in this pipeline to do treatment for TBI. And then the army was like, dude, you're broken beyond like anything that we can do to fix you. We're going to either separate you or retire you. And like, I was started going through this identity crisis. So like in my life, when one thing falls, everything falls. I don't know how to manage life when one thing falls. And so yeah. my health started going down. So like work was going down. My relationship went down. Everything went down. My relationship with my child went down and it was terrible. That was one of the worst times in my life. And uh, 2018, I had a suicide attempt because I just felt like I have no reason to live anymore. And I I was going through all this physical pain, this emotional pain. Um, my relationship was pretty much over because I found out she was cheating on me uh, <laughs> to, to work. You know, I was losing my job. 
unwillingly like I didn't want to lose it, but I was losing it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have no purpose to live anymore. Like people are like, Oh, your kid. She has a stepdad that is like a thousand times the man that I am. Don't really give a fuck. Right. Like she's going to be okay. Um, but in reality, like my daughter needed me. She yeah. still does. Right? Of course. Uh, and I put my truck into a tree at 70 miles an hour. And I woke up um, in the hospital and, you know, some survivors will say, you know, they're happy to be alive. And I just woke up and I was like, why the fuck am I still here? What did I do wrong? And I ended up getting released from the hospital, went home and a uh, good buddy of mine, Jeremy, pulls up. He was one of my soldiers. He pulls up. He's like, hey, man, I don't trust that you're going to be okay in your house by yourself. Come live with me. So he pulled me out of the house. I went and stayed with him for a night or two. And that man saved my life because I probably would have tried uh, to end it again. Are, and good. Well, I was just going to say, are other, I, I mean, I can't imagine that there's anybody you can really talk to aside from other veterans. Uh, yeah. I mean, but like I have this understanding of like suicide and suicide attempts now mm-hmm. versus then, right? Like I can talk about suicide. I've, I've gone talk to corrections officers about it. Sure. I've gone and talked to other people about it. Like, I'm not afraid to talk about it anymore. I, yeah. Well, I just where, mean, who else can relate to this life that you had lived oh, yeah. in your that's, early adulthood? It's, yeah, that, it's that's something hard. most of us don't ever have to go through. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. Um, yeah. Veterans. I, I talked to a lot of veterans about it. Uh, and we'll get into that here in a second. But yeah, um, yeah I, I, I ended up like realizing that. I had a problem that I couldn't control and I couldn't fix. And so I checked myself into the hospital on base and I spent 11 days inpatient, like typical, like white clothes, no shoelaces, white rooms, getting meds every day. And I learned a lot. Right. And, and I appreciate that. And then I did um, 11 days outpatient and that I, I, I absolutely needed that. And then I went through with my divorce and I got divorced um, and then, Shortly after that, I met a woman. <laughs> How many hours? Like 12 hours. <laughs> it wasn't hours, okay? It was a month, all right? <laughs> all right. 30 times 24. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, 720 many hours. <laughs> How many fingers do I have? Um, I'm not good at math. Uh, <laughs> but I, I met a woman, and she told me everything I wanted to hear, right? Um. And, and it was hard, right? Like it was hard to transition from that last relationship into this one. Cause I was going from, you know, I, I had baggage and, um, we didn't get married right away, which I'm happy about. We waited. Um, but I got kicked out of the army in that time, not kicked out. I was medically retired. And so when I got medically retired, like there's, and I hear, I, you know, I know that, you know, in, in the news, you'll hear a lot about the VA and like VA sucks and they do at, at certain points, at least with the benefits portion. So I didn't have an income coming in. Um, I applied to all these jobs and I wasn't getting any hits back. And I was just in a really bad time in my life. I was sober during that time, but like, I was like, Oh, it's legal to smoke in Alaska. Yeah, let's do it. So like I traded one substance for another cause I was always high. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't doing it to like relieve any stress. Like I was doing it to get fucked up. And uh, I ended up going to a, I, I, I got a hit on a job at, a, at, at the airport um, working for a smaller business. So I went, I interviewed for them. I got the job and I started working customer service. Now I'm working in a, in, in a section of all women um, interacting with people. Mm-hmm. 
And I fucking hate people. <laughs> I, fucking, I fucking hate people. Um, so, but I was really nice about it, right? Like, mm-hmm. very judgy, but very nice. But, but I was very nice about it. And, okay. But all the men and like around were fucking terrified of me, right? I'm you beard, big bearded guy. I'm short. I'm like five five, right? Uh, me too. On a me good too. Day. All right. I'm like five five on a good day. All right. Okay. And like, um. But I got this big ass beard and I look like a Viking and people are like, that's that's terrifying. <laughs> and, and the things I used to say, God damn it. The things I used to say used to scare the shit out of people. And so like uh, I would walk into my manager's office, female. She understood my sense of humor. Everybody else uh-huh. didn't. And so like she had this meeting and I remember very candidly. She had this like meeting one day with all the other managers with the, with the exception of like the big manager. And they're all in the office. I walk in. I'm like, knock, knock, knock. I'm like, Angie. Um, what's the fastest way to a man's heart? She's like, I don't know food. And I was like, no, an axe. Just turn around and walk away. And they're like, <laughs> what? What? And it scared them. And I didn't understand. Like, I, I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm cool. Right. Like, <laughs> right. But I was very intimidating. And I don't like that. I didn't like that about myself mm-hmm. because I don't consider myself intimidating, but other people do. And that's perception. Mm-hmm. I, and I, so and that that drives people away. I was gonna say I've gotten that on occasion, not not often, but on on occasion. Again, I'm I'm uh five foot five and three quarters, uh, yeah. inch man, and <laughs> I again, you said the beard, and yeah, people see a certain look, and my humor's dark as well, mm-hmm. often. And mm-hmm. to me, you say that, and it's like clearly just a joke, nothing else. And I get myself in trouble on occasion that way too. Oh, and yeah. it's, but to me, I can't even comprehend how that's anything but a joke. Yeah. Oh, de- definitely. Yeah. I, I, I can't see that. It, you know, I couldn't at the time see like how that was, how I could scare people. I was like, <laughs> I'm just this nice guy, right? All the women think I'm nice, but the guys don't. Even the exes. But yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so um, I, I'm doing this customer service job and I'm with this woman that I like, and we get married in May, um, 2019. And, uh, I'm sitting there and I'm just like, you know what? I think I can drink one more time. I think I can, I got this right. Like I'm no longer in the army. I'm in a better head space. I'm with somebody like I'm making all these excuses for why I I'm going to drink. Okay. And and so uh July fourth, uh twenty nineteen, fourth of July, Independence Day, I had my 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 last drink. Well, not my last drink, but my my last relapsed. And and I started that one. That one lasted like like six, nine months. Yes. And so like I went and I was like, I think I'm good to drink. I'm just gonna have one. And then one to let to like five that night. And mm-hmm. I was like, you know, the next night I was like, I will be good. I'll just I'll have two. And then two led to five. And then I went right back to the way I was drinking, right? And so, like, that relapse lasted for six months. And December 7th, 2019 was, like, any other day, right? I went to work. I was driving home. I had to drive by a gas station. So I was like, oh, it's a Friday. We're going to go. I'm going to get home. We're going to play Cards Against Humanity like we always do. And so, like, stopping the gas station. I had a little bit more money in my in, in my account because I got that Christmas pay. I got the Christmas bonus, right? And I was <laughs> like, yeah, dude, I'm, I'm hot shit. Feeling good? Feeling good, feeling great. I'm a little bit uplifted. And I, I uh, 
get two bottles of Hennessy this time, not one, two. <laughs> God damn it. And so like um I get home and I pull in the parking space. I didn't even I didn't even turn the vehicle off and I already cracked a bottle and was drinking. And I get into the house. I don't remember a lot. Um don't remember a lot. And um I came to and it was December and I came to and I'm outside of my house with no shirt on. Uh and it's snowing and it's fucking really cold outside. I had no business being outside, but I was like angry, dude. Like I was fucking and I go back in the house and my house is destroyed. Holes in the wall all over the place. My shit is all over the ground. My collectibles like Funkos were like destroyed. I'm like, what the fuck happened here? And I look down the hallway and my wife is on the floor. But I know like I'm angry and I'm like, I need to get the fuck out of here. So I left. And I called her the next morning. She's like, you hit me. And I said, what? She's like, you hit me. I said, I don't remember any of that. And she was like, you did. She never gave me a reason to like doubt her. So I was like, you know what? Fuck this, man. I got to, I'm, I'm out of control. So I called the police. I called Anchorage PD and I said, look, y'all have to fucking arrest me now. Like, I will meet you somewhere. You fucking handcuff me. And they did. And I went and spent 20 days in Anchorage jail on an assault charge. And, uh, but that was, that was a misdemeanor. And I got a felony for, um, for criminal mischief, which is like just breaking my own shit, right? Acting ass. And, um, I spent 20 days in jail, but in that 20 days, man, like I was like blaming everybody for my problems. It's like, it's fucking my dad's fault. My mom's fault. Cause I'm an alcoholic. Cause they were fucking addicts and alcoholics. It's my wife's fault. She could have like told me not to drink. I would have listened to her. Uh, <laughs> it was my roommate's fault. He could have choked me the fuck out. But I had this native man, um, old native man. He was like, Viking, shut the fuck up. They call me Viking in jail. And he was like, Viking, shut the fuck up. And I was like, who are you to talk to me like that? He's like, you created all these problems in your life. Like when you accept that and you accept that you have caused a lot of the damage in your life, you'll be all right. But until then, you're, you know, you're going to be right here where, where we are. That was my first trip to jail. And my only trip to jail. And so I sat there. That was on December 27th. And I sat there in my cell. And at first I was like, man, fuck him. Like, who is this old ass man to tell me how to fucking live my life? He don't know me. But then, like, I sat and I was like, you know what? He's actually right. Like, I, all these damaged relationships I had. Like, a lot of these people with a problem. But I am a huge contributor to it. And, like, just sat there and I played my life out, right? Like, played the tape. And I was just like, I fucked a lot of this up. And the crazy shit happened. I accepted it. I got a knock on myself from the CEO. And he was like, hey, um, pack your shit up. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, y- your bail got posted. I was like, what? He was like, your bail got posted. He was like, we're waiting on electronic monitoring to put your ankle bracelets on. I was like, okay. All right. And that's, and I got released. And that's the day that I say that I started my recovery is, is that day, December 27, 2019. Do, um, do you know who that man was? Have you ever seen him again? Had you seen him before? The the guy that gave me the advice? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I do know who he is. Um, I haven't seen him, but I, I seen his brother because his, uh, when I was in recovery, I found out like his brother was in recovery. His brother was a veteran and him and I were in the same center together. Wow, and I, I, I went to him. I said, "Your brother 
gave me the some of the best advice that I've ever received, and I fucking needed it. And the next time you see him, tell him thank you. And um, yeah, so I entered into recovery. I went to what is called like a drug court, like some like they're called different things, but they're called drug courts or felony DUI or like mental health courts. But ours was a therapeutic court designated yeah. for veterans. And um, I got into it, and it was a nine month program for me. I was held accountable for everything. Every decision I made, every decision that that I was gonna make, I was held accountable for. Accountable for. I, I entered into into therapy, uh, individual and group. I went into counseling. I, I I had UAs every day. I had to go to AA meetings, fuck it, at least three times a week. But I went every single day because I knew I needed it. And uh, it was just one of the uh, one of the things that really got me on this path of recovery. And I I just sit in front of a judge every Monday. And the first Monday I went in there, my wife was there, my ex-wife now, but my wife was there and she sat there through the whole process and she supported me through the whole process. And like, I was in front of a judge and the judge was like, man, um, from my understanding, you've tried to get sober many times and you failed. What's different now? And I, I was like, I have to do it for myself. Right, like I've done it for everybody else. I have to do it for myself. And if I'm not doing it for myself, I'm gonna relapse again. And I'm not making it back this fucking time. And that was a foreshadowing of things to come. Um, but I graduated the program October 2020. And uh November 2020, some of the um participants that were still in the program, we call them participants because they're not patients. Um mm-hmm. They came to me, they said, hey, we got process groups for civilians, but we don't have a process group for veterans, right? We have this alumni meeting where uh, graduates of the therapeutic courts hold meetings every week and talk about, you know, their week or like a specific top topic. And so I reached out to the alumni group and I said, hey, I'd like to start a veteran group. And I started a veteran group uh, November 2020, and it's still going strong. And uh, I facilitate that all the way from Maryland where I'm at now. Um, but yeah, I've done a lot since then and I've done a lot of growing and life has changed for me significantly. I haven't had a relapse. I've had a lot of things come up since then that were very detrimental that, uh, if, if in my old life, my old way of thinking, um, I would have relapsed, but you know, I have these tools and these skills that I've learned now and it's helped me out a lot. I'm, I'm a better version of who I used to be. I'm a better version of myself than I was yesterday. I am uh, a better human being, better father. Uh, I'm a better partner. I'm just better individual. It's wow. amazing, man. It's yeah. amazing. And I've been, uh, I, I have lived uh, not, not a similar life, not a parallel life, but uh, I also have been sober for the last two years, just, just over two years. That's fucking um, huge. Congrats. The same to you, my man. And uh, yeah, it, the conclusion for me is the same that I'm a better father. I'm a better partner and I'm a, in a better, a better place with a better understanding of, of, of who I actually am. And um, yeah, you know, I sat in a recruiter's office when I was 18 or 19 and I feel like I could have had a very uh, parallel life. I just made some slightly different choices at that time but uh, uh it's it's amazing to hear 
the way that you've shared that and the way that you've you, you, you've lived, man. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the hell out of you. All right, well, hug it out, guys. Hug it out. Um, <laughs> Come here. <laughs> Sean, Come here. I'll take, man. I'll take it. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry, Sean, where are you located right now? I live in – I moved back home to Sharpsburg, Maryland. All right. I, the, uh, the main reason I asked is because we've got uh, a lot of fans in Maryland. I, mm. I, I've, one of my friends lives outside Baltimore, and she nice. basically walks up to strangers on the street and says, listen to this podcast. Nice. Um Maybe exaggerating so big just to a little. Thanks to all three bit. listeners out there in Maryland too. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, for now, <laughs> picking them up. Well, the, one of the one of those experiences is what kind. One of those life altering experiences is what led me back home. Um, yeah. This past December, um, I was in Alaska, and within a matter of four days, um, I went from my ex wife saying, "I'm not happy." to I don't want to be in this marriage to I bought a house to I'm moving out okay. and I sat in, in my house for two weeks and absolute ruins man right like I thought everything was fine right absolute ruins but I knew the one thing that wasn't like not gonna fucking happen was I'm not gonna drink right like if if, if it was an hour I wasn't going to drink. If it was 24 hours, I'm not going to drink. And I learned, I, I took all those skills that I learned in, in early recovery and I applied them to that situation. So like I lived on my phone 24 um, seven. I went to meetings more actively than I was. Um, I, I attended recovery meetings that I didn't fucking need to go to, but like I knew was, we're going to help. Um, and then uh, I was just like, you know, I, I was like, I gotta, I gotta go visit my dad. Right. Like I got to do something. I got to change my situation. So I packed enough clothes to like be gone for a month and um, came down here. And within that time, like here's a reoccurring theme too. Um, within that time, I found out like she was cheating on me. I had been since August and it fucked me up hard. Right. Because like this was a woman that said, I'm never going to use your trauma against you. And she did. Um, she said, uh, I'm never going to cheat on you. And she did, uh, all these promises that she made, she did. And it fucked me apart. But I knew the one thing I wasn't going to do was drink. No, my dad is a drinker still is. And I went to his house and he actively drinks in the house and I could be around it and not be triggered by it. Not be like, I need to fucking get out of here. Um, and, and so that showed me that that proved to me like my recovery is working because a I didn't relapse in the hardest time in my life in my recovery. Um, B I could be around it and not be triggered by it. Three, I didn't need it to survive, and I didn't need it to to over you know to overcome what I was going through or to be a a reason uh, for, to be a dickhead. So uh, in that time, I I reengaged therapy. I went back to therapy. I was still doing all the things that I needed to do to stay sober and to maintain that recovery. And I'm still, I'm still sober. And, and it's the best fucking gift that I've ever been given in my life. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. We had one guest talk about addiction early in our run. And he said that, you know, his, what he called kind of a simple life at this point is a better life than he could have ever dreamed of when he yeah. was in the midst of, of his addictions. And 
I, I mean, it, it's an amazing thing to hear. And it sounds like for all of our guests and for, for you that um, it really changes your perspective. And, and once you get to where you, you're, you're trying to go, um, you can really appreciate what you've got. And I, I think that that's wonderful. I'm grateful for everything I have. Right. Like I used, I used to be like, want more. Right. And that was, that was my, my thing is, is more, I had this problem of more, I have to get more. And, and, uh, now it's just not that I'm, I'm grateful for what I, what I have. Right. Um, I'm medically retired from the army. I'm retired at the age of 35. I was retired at the age of 31, 32. Right. Um, I, I live at home where I'm surrounded by my family, not at home at home, but I'm close enough to my family where, I can, I can be around them if I, if I wanted to or needed to, mm-hmm. um, I'm in a, in a caring relationship now where uh, it's a mutual relationship and where nothing. And I know that you guys are like this motherfucker got into another relationship. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he, he, you know, you do it enough times. You're going to get it right once. Mm. No, I, I, I went I, into this one with, with the expectation of, I just want to be friends, right? Like I don't want mm-hmm. anything else. I just want to be friends. I want to get to know the person that I'm that I'm going to be in bed with before I fucking step into that realm because that's yeah. a really tricky wick. Uh, mm-hmm. And we became friends, and uh, we have a lot in common. But we have so much not in common that it, it's it's good. It's it's entertaining. It's refreshing, right? And like I have my thing, she has her thing. Uh, I podcast. I do video editing. I do. I do so much stuff, right? And mm-hmm. like I'm fulfilled with what I have, but I'm not forgetting what I, what what I have, right? And I don't necessarily need for more or want for more. I'm just grateful for what I have. I help other people in their recovery, and that is fulfilling to me. Hell yes, it's um, awesome, man. We have run long, and it's been because you've been such a great storyteller and i i think our fans uh are terrible listeners fans might be a strong word i like to think of them as fans but you know let, let's let's be real they're, they tolerate us they're terrible listeners uh do tolerate us a little bit they're probably happy that you tolerate kept... us but i'm pretty sure they're gonna love you sean yeah that's yeah thank you the, the point i was gonna make is you've had me shut the fuck up for most of this i've just been listening like everyone else so they're probably thank Thankful for that. I can talk too much at times. Um, but what else? So you're working with veterans and we're going to start wrapping up. Um, can you, what, what does that look like? So I work with the Alaska Therapeutic Court alumni and I facilitate groups every Wednesday night uh, at 11 o'clock my time, seven there's okay. uh, PM. And you can do that remotely. Yep. Yep. I do it over zoom. And we do process groups for an hour. Sometimes it runs longer. I've had groups that's run two hours just because like people have these really deep shares and I don't fucking care. Right. If it's helping them, it's helping me. Right. And um, so we either do topic driven conversations that deal with recovery or deal with life and or we'll do like a general check in and everybody has my phone number. So if shit goes down, goes south. They always know they can call me. Mm-hmm. Um, I also help veterans on social media. I help anybody in recovery on social media, anybody seeking recovery on social media. Um, I do podcasting, right? Like I love this shit. Like I was so terrified when I first started, but fucking love it now. (laughs) Well, when you were talking about being fulfilled with some of the things that you're doing, I've 
never had that feeling until I started doing this podcast. It's oh, yeah. it's been life changing for me, and I have not been at my best with physical health in the last several months. But the one time a week that, or two times a week, or whatever that I feel like myself, are when we record, and I forget everything else. It's such a cool thing. Um, so your your podcast, Recover Out Loud, uh, is one of them. I would imagine that the recovery and addiction are the type of things that you dive into. Yep, absolutely. So we we primarily talk about addiction and recovery there. I have people that are in recovery. I have people that support people in recovery. I have doctors, psychologists, you name it. If if you have a situation that you recovered from, whether it be mental health or addiction, I'm here to hear the story and I love it. Okay. Awesome. Cool. And is that available everywhere? Yep. It's available everywhere to include iHeartRadio. I just got approved for iHeartRadio. That's awesome. Oh, wow. Very All nice. Right. Very nice. Um, yeah. congratulations. That it's super exciting. And, um, you said you had another one paranormal. Um, yeah. what was that one? under the veil? Beyond the veil. Beyond the veil. It's close. Yeah. So. Beyond the veil, uh, debuts November 6th and it primarily focuses on people that work in the paranormal field, psychics, mediums, uh, investigators, demonologists, more i've had somebody that's not necessarily a ufo expert but she lived outside of skinwalker ranch and presented evidence in that episode <laughs> it was fucking awesome okay uh, yeah i seen dan like oh shit yeah, yeah uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be subscribing to episode one <laughs> so the venture of beyond the veil started because during october i do spooky content right like i stray a little bit away from from the recovery stuff because like it gets a little heavy at times right and like break yeah. up break up the content and um during the month of october i wanted to find a certain niche of guests and um two of my guests bailed and i went to the podcast community i was like hey i'd like to fucking interview somebody that is you know x y and z Okay. And the amount of outpouring of people to say, I want to share my story, share my experience. I was like, I cannot not fucking start a show. Right? Like, <laughs> I have to start a separate show. And so I did. And, um, you know, my, my spooky month is about to wrap up next week. I actually have that guest. It, well, I kind of formatted everything to lead into this guest, but I have a Catholic exorcist uh, that, that wow. is, is his episode is on Halloween. <laughs> that that fucking episode i'll tell you that episode changed the way i look at everything okay everything you said on halloween you mean it's releasing on halloween like mm -hmm. literally that's okay yep. so yep. 48 hours 40. that's right well this episode will air after that so all our terrible oh, listeners true. go back we'll put a link to uh to, to that episode in the show notes because that's gonna be fire i can't wait yeah. to listen to that yeah. yeah, it's it's exciting. I had I had Sean Austin from Twenty Eight Days Haunted on uh, before that, and I've had a psychic medium, a paranormal investigator from uh, Tennessee on, and then a personal friend prior to that. So yeah, uh, I have a lot of of stuff. I have years worth of content. I have a wrestler I've recorded for Recover Out Loud. I have more wrestlers coming on because I'm a huge wrestling fan. I, if you, well, <laughs> you can't tell because it's audio, but. 
for everybody listening, I'm a huge professional wrestling fan. I love everything WWE, AEW. So yeah, when I got those people to say, hey, I'm going to share my story. I was like, Fuck yeah, let's do it. You know what? And one one of our Maryland guests that we've had on before was also our last huge. He had tattoos of didn't he have Ric Flair tattoos? If I remember correctly, Dan, do you you remember which one he had? Nice. So yeah, awesome. That that that's incredible. Um, Sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun um, with your paranormal uh, adventures. I guess is the word that I was looking for. Um, But as we ghost adventures, what's that? Said so not ghost adventures, wink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm we glad don't you like s- Zach Bagan in this house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you said the wink out loud since you know we're, we we they can't quite see you. Um, but as we wrap up, Sean, uh, is there any last thing that you'd want to say to to our listeners, whether it's about trauma, addiction? the choice of joining the military. I, I, I just kind of like to hear a, a little wisdom from you that you've experienced or picked up over the years. Mm. If you're going to do something, do it for yourself. Don't do it for anybody else. If you do Boom. it for somebody else, uh, you're going to fucking fail. You're going to, you're going to feel this, this, this sense of uh, lack of empowerment and do it for your fucking self, man. Everything you achieve in, achieve in life, do it for yourself. Right. Uh, there, there is no right way to do things. There's multiple right ways to do things, right? So yeah. just because their way is right to them doesn't mean your way is not right to you. And and finally, like, do what you love, right? I see so many people that suffer through life, living a fucking life that they hate, that they just despise. Do what you love. Do it. Because if you do what you love, you're never going to work a day in your life. I know sometimes it's easier said than done, but it's true. Yeah. If you do, dude, I, I love doing this shit, right? And this is my, I consider it my job, right? Like, I fucking mm-hmm. love podcasting. Um, there's days where I hate it, but overall, I love it. <laughs> I, I hate trying to do the social media for it. Um, oh, yeah. But aside from that, I get it. And you're speaking uh, directly to me more than you know. I'm in a transition in life right now um, where I've left my job and now it's okay, figuring out what the next steps are. Um, And I am lucky to be in that position. I think that uh, a lot of people who are able to do that, um, you know, are, are very lucky. And sometimes it's, it's a mixture of luck and a willingness to, follow what you value and understand that you know money does pay the bills so there's a baseline that you need to get to i'm not going to tell anyone that money doesn't make life easier but also doing something that's fulfilling has a value to it too and you know if you're sacrificing a few dollars um but are able to follow your your passions uh, it's absolutely worth it and something that's been scary for me to think about throughout my life. And I'm, I finally decided to do it. So, um, you know, those words are kind of inspirational to me and I'll, I'll make sure to keep you updated on, on my journey. But um, overall, man, thank you so much for being here today. It's uh, It's been wonderful. I, Dan and I probably spoke less than we've ever spoken in an interview before because we were sitting here captivated. So thank you so much. I'm so glad you're, you were not only able, but, but willing to come and share with us. Thank you. 
Thank you for having me. And if you guys hear this this howling in the background, my neighbors have like eight thousand Dalmatians. Uh, I, so. I just thought that shit was haunted. I, oh, oh, okay. Well, I answered. I, I debunked it for you. <laughs> I thought Dalmatians were only bought and sold in quantities of 101. Um, yeah. So 8,000. Uh, okay. It's a little bit dramatic, but it's close. Yeah. 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 So uh, awesome. I did hear it. I. It's part of the charm of doing some remote podcasting and even remote yeah. work. Dan and I have worked remote. Like I said, I'm transitioning, but I've got two days left. Uh, I will be, my last one is your uh, Halloween episode. My last day is on Halloween. So I guess uh, I know what I'll be doing Tuesday night. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you again. Uh, you've been an amazing guest. Uh, as I always love to say, you've passed the decent fucking human test. Um, you're a quality dude. I've really enjoyed it. Dan, I'm sure has enjoyed it. I always speak for him at this point. Um, but we're honored, uh, humbled, grateful, uh, all of those fun words that your willingness to, to be with us and share. And, uh, I guess terrible listeners remember to like, and follow our socials, listen to Sean's podcasts. Uh, we'll, we'll send some links out about those. Um, then if you could leave us a, a review and follow the podcast on any of the, uh, podcast platforms, but listeners, thank you today for joining us. And as always, it's been absolutely positively terrible. Positively Terrible is a part of the Terrible Podcast Network.